Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 109. Yes, I know I left you without an episode to listen to last week, but I figured with Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa all overlapping a bit, everyone was probably busy and wouldn't notice. But we're back. We're going to close out the year with a great episode and then get right back to it in 2020 for more guests. Still hard to believe that this podcast will celebrate its second birthday on January 3rd, but yes, that day is rapidly approaching. We're going to get into this episode relatively quickly because it's a lengthy one. It's a great one, but it is a lengthy one filled with great stories from a guest that I'm excited to finally get on the podcast. I have several announcements about 2020 and also some information on the future of this podcast to share with you, but I'll do that in the upcoming weeks. Rest assured, I'm not going anywhere. Still going to bring you interesting guests each and every week, but we're going to switch it up a little bit and see if we can expand on the type of guests that you've heard from in the past. We're still going to have some amazing collegiate players and amateurs, and I hope you all will continue to support the podcast. As always, please share these episodes with friends and family that would enjoy the back of the range. You already know that we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Merch is available on the website. In fact, to make it easy, just go to thebackoftherange.com. So our final guest of 2019 is Brad Tilley from Easton, Connecticut. When I speak with listeners and ask what kind of guest you'd want to have on the podcast, I always hear, I want more mid-ams and I want more mini-tour pros. Well, Brad falls into both of those categories. He played collegiately at the University of Virginia, and then he embarked on a professional career where he set up shop down here in South Florida. Remarkably, he was able to play and practice at clubs like Bear Lakes and Medalist, where he shared the same practice facilities as some of the best players in the world. Once he regained his amateur status back, It wasn't long before he found himself competing at the national level. In fact, Brad played in the 2018 U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach 17 years after his first U.S. Am appearance at Eastlake in 2001. So, tons of great stories in this episode with a great twist at the end, so had a lot of fun with this one. Let's get started, and let's close out 2019 in style. Brad, welcome to the Back of the Range. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, and uh, excited for the chat. Absolutely. Well, you know, we've we've hit so many great mid-ams. We've hit so many great senior ams throughout the country. And just the it's a, incredible how the list just keeps growing and growing. You, you think you have hit almost everyone, and then you really haven't because there's just no shortage of amazing amateurs around the country. So uh, did you know you're on that list? Did I just surprise you there? I'm glad I'm on the list. I feel uh, honored after... Uh... We connected and I went through all your past podcasts. I was uh, it's a list I'm honored to be on and, and proud to be on. So I appreciate uh, being part of that. And uh, I think you're uh, dead on there when you talk about the depth in golf right now, whether it be amateur, mid-amateur, junior, college, uh, and even mini tours and developmental tours and PGA tour. It's just uh, golf's in a great place right now. Yeah. Well, and you've had your share of experiences on just about every single level, as far as, you know, amateur and, and then professional now back to amateur, you know, we always kind of hit on the start of a player's career, how they get into the game of golf. But I wanted to try something a little bit different with your episode, 
just to kind of give some of the listeners an idea of what kind of stories you're going to be able to share in this episode, this is going to be pretty unique. So we'll give the backstory of this and how it actually came to be, but let's go right out of the box and explain to me how bad of a heckler Michael Jordan is on the golf course. He is everything that you would expect. Uh, he lives up to his reputation and, um, obviously being, uh, a kid in the nineties and watching him in his prime and hearing all the stories about not only how great he was on the court and watching that, but, uh, how good he was at trash talking. Uh, I was very lucky to be able to kind of mingle in and amongst his circles down in South Florida during my professional days. And, uh, a good buddy of mine, Hugo Leon, who's still playing he's on the European tour, got introduced to Ahmad Rashad and Michael. And uh, I was lucky to be invited once to uh, join a friendly game with them. And, <laughs> uh, it, the way you're t- telling this story is friendly is very subjective, actually. Yeah, you can you can uh, fill in the blank there. Gotcha. Um, he, so we got to the first tee, and uh, I mean, obviously you're going to be nervous just to meet a guy like Michael Jordan, but to play golf with him is, is pretty special, but you're going to be nervous. And of course I was, we get to the first tee and, um, it was pretty natural. I mean, he's such a good, really good guy and he loves golf, um, plays pretty much every day down in Florida. So we get there and he's, he's walking with a bit of swag and as he always does. And he comes up to the tee and goes, what are we playing for? And I, said, I don't know. What should we do? And he goes, well, whatever makes you nervous. So that's the opening line. Oh, God. Um, and that's great. So, uh, yeah. we, we come up with a, a bet and, uh, that's the game. And he wants uh six shots. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a professional golfer and he's out of six handicap. So I should be a plus at that point. I should be able to handle this. And, uh, but then again, you know, he's going to be coming at you all day with sure. the verbal abuse. And, uh, the one thing I will say is on the golf side of things, I mean, he's a very, he has it very short for his size, but he is very accurate and he's very clutch on the golf course. So every stroke hole, which are the hardest holes on the course, typically, He's making a par. He'll find a way. Every time he gets in a bunker, he makes it up and down from inside 10 feet. If it's an important putt, he seems to to make it. It's like watching him shoot free throws. Right. Um, so that's very impressive. But the uh, smack talking was uh, pretty impressive. And I'm a UVA guy, and he's a, obviously a decorated Tar Heel. So he had a lot to say about that and how he used to beat up on Ralph Sampson um, and all this <laughs> stuff. So... It just, you know, just nonsense. I had to listen to all day, but, uh, I remember the pup I had on 14 and he was beating me up in the match. Um, to no surprise, I guess. And, uh, I have this five footer to have the hole and he's looking over me kind of smirking with that big smile he has. And he just starts going, wahoo. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously the Virginia wahoos and he's over there taunting me as i'm hitting this five foot putt. he's already beaten me up enough he doesn't need need to do that and right fortunately i found a way to squeak that putt in and have the hole he ultimately won the match but uh yeah great smack talker um great clutch player and i mean it was just awesome to be in his circle for a day and and meet him and, and play around a golf with him 
You know, it's crazy to think that, you know, his first thing on the on the T is, you know, whatever whatever amount of money makes you nervous. I always kind of find that interesting when when you have I mean, look, I don't know what your bankroll is, but let's just say it's not what Michael Jordan's bankroll is, which is obviously that's pretty I don't think anyone's bankroll is at that level. <laughs> I mean, what what do you do? Like what number do you set? And also, you know that the number most likely doesn't mean much to him. I guess that just goes to his level of competitiveness where really it's not money. He just likes the juice and the action and the stress and, and the trash talking. So the money really isn't a thing with him. No, no, we could have played for the tees in our pocket and he would have thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, he's an ultra competitive guy. And, and, and for me, honestly, I mean, had we obviously my bankroll at the time, I'm a struggling mini tour right, player or whatever you want to call it. I think I was on the Canadian tour at the time. And, uh, you know, it wasn't for me. It wasn't really about the money. I mean, of right. course, if he came up with a huge number, I just can't afford that, right? Well, so, look, it, I mean, there's PGA <laughs> Tour players that don't have that bankroll, so it's really that's why that's what I'm getting at. The bankroll is like it just go like I said, it just goes to his level of you're just not going to beat me, and and I'm yeah. going to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, it was pure competitiveness, and um, I mean, I don't really get nervous. I never was nervous for the money aspect of it i mean it was more of the finish i mean obviously money playing professional golf means things and if you're on a tour and you're trying to move up the order of merit or a money list that means something but it was never a dollar amount in my head that would have made me nervous over a, a pot or a shot or coming down the stretch it was more <clears throat> the finish and making sure you know you had a solid finish or you could be in contention to win a tournament or make a cut or um, it was it was more along those lines yeah than, the actual money amount. So, um, but, um yeah. so, so talk to me now. You mentioned Virginia. You know, you you were at Virginia two thousand two, two thousand six. Um, you know, captain of the uh, of the golf team there. Um, what brought you to Virginia? Give me a little bit about. Give our listeners a little bit about your start in the game. Okay. Um, well, my start in the game started at age four, so I think we'll skip a bunch of the yeah. Let's. The boring, uh, you know, I'm running out of storage stuff. space on this hard drive, so let's just bump it up a little bit. But no, you, you know what I'm saying. Like, when did golf become, you know, something of a a passion? Where like, okay, this this is something that suits me. I see a a. I want to pursue this a little bit. Yeah, well, I think as a, any young boy, I mean, I wanted to be a professional athlete, and that was something uh, I always wanted to do, and hockey was my first love. If I could have been an NHL player, I would have done that, um, but uh, that aside, I, I played golf growing up. My dad was an avid golfer. He got me into the game, and I won a bunch of junior tournaments pretty much right away, um, and some of them by big margins, so I think I was on the radar as far as a junior who was going to be recruited at some level and I developed nicely through the AJGA and uh, actually decided and my parents helped me decide to go to a, a private boarding school um, to avoid having to be in school so late in the summer uh, right. growing up in New York where you have uh, the regents exams which end in the end of June and that kind of stops you from playing about half of the competitive junior schedule so they made the decision uh, with me to go into boarding school and actually went to a boarding school in Virginia, had a nice uh, high school experience there. And uh, UVA was one of the schools that recruited me. And uh, there were some good names in other schools there, but uh, staying in Virginia, uh, just something I just was 
into. It was a good golf school, uh, warmer than New York still, um, even though they have a little bit of a winter. And uh, my visit was incredible there. I just I had a blast. I knew a bunch of guys on the team, and uh, it was an easy decision for me, really. And I, I was fortunate to be recruited by a bunch of good schools, including University of Virginia, and it was an easy decision for me, personally. So you play your college golf there. You, know, you rise to the, the spot of being captain on the team. You actually win your your lone collegiate individual event in your final tournament. Is that correct? That is, yeah. It was, it was wild. Um, I was in contention a few times before, and it was always something. I won a lot early in my junior career, and then as you step up to each level, it becomes harder and harder to win. Um, so I was always having a bunch of top five and top 10 finishes, but I really had a tough time breaking through with, with some of the wins I thought I was going to have or should have. And I remember playing that final tournament. It was a weird scenario where usually the ACC championship is your last tournament. If you don't uh, get on to NCAAs. Right. So we weren't in a position that year uh, to make NCAAs unless we won the ACC tournament. And for some reason, because of a scheduling conflict, the ACC tournament took place before the Cavalier Classic, which is our home event. So that's weird. That, that had never happened before. And we didn't win ACC championships. So I knew the Cavalier Classic was going to be my final event uh, as a college golfer. Um, it was pretty cool. I played every single event at UVA. I didn't miss a single one, um, which that's, was, that's which was awesome. It was it was cool. I don't think a lot of guys do that. So that was nice. Um, I was playing well. I was, I'd been prepping all year with the coaching staff there, uh, Bowen Sargent, who's still there. And, uh, we worked hard on getting ready for my professional career while obviously trying to contribute to the team and, and everything I could do there. So I was playing well and I went out and I won't say I played my best, but I hung in there all week and everyone struggled the final round. I think I shot a 72 or something thought maybe it wasn't going to be good enough. We get in, look at the scoreboard and it's going to be close. And, uh, it was a playoff. I was playing against, uh, Blaine Pefley. He was a really top golfer at the time, actually. And, uh, he had gone to Arizona and then transferred back to Maryland. And, uh, he was at Maryland we had a seven hole playoff where I ended up, uh, kind of turning the tables on him on the seventh hole making about a 20 footer for par and he had an eight footer for par. So he's licking his chops thinking I'm going to miss and he's going to make, I put the pressure on him and he misses. And that was my, my lone college victory in my last event. So it was a nice way to go out. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you mentioned that you were already prepping for your professional career with your coaches. Um, I mean, what are some of the things that you were doing to prepare for the professional career. And then also what were some of the things that led you to that decision other than I always want to be a professional athlete, but what told you throughout your college career that this is something I need to, to try um, as opposed to, you know, the, the, you know, the adage of like, Oh, well, if I don't try, I'll always look back and kick myself. You know, was it, was it just that, or was it more that told you, Hey, this is a, this is a calculated uh, move for me. Yeah, it was pretty calculated from an early age. I want to say around age 11 or 12, I, I started telling people that I was going to do it. And it was just always in my mind. And I had had 
such success at the local junior level at that point where I, I truly believed it, you know? So I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm playing really well in the junior circuit, winning a ton of events and, um, watching Tiger doing what he's doing as he's coming out, um, around that time. And I looked up to him and I aspired to be someone like him. Um, and it was kind of always my plan. And fortunately I continued to play well enough where not every year was a standout year, but you know, my junior year in college, for example, was all ACC first team, um, third in the ACC championship, beating a bunch of guys that, um, are a lot bigger names in the game of golf than I am right now. But, uh, you're talking about Bill Haas's and Roberto Castro's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it was, it was just nice to progress that way. And I felt very confident coming off my junior year, um, that I was making the right decision. Um, there wasn't really any doubt in my mind that it's what I wanted to do, but that I also had the capabilities to do it. So, um, it, it was always planned. Nice. Um, I want to ask, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the professional career. Um, you know, you did get your amateur status back. So you are currently a, a mid amateur playing up in the New York area. Um, but I want to ask you about the U S amateur. So you play in three of them before you turn pro you played it at East Lake in 01 Wingfoot in 04 and Marion 05. And, uh, you know, anytime I see someone's resume, with back-to-back qualifications for the U.S. Amateur, that, that's another level because it's so hard to get into a U.S. Amateur and then do it two years in a row. And then what's interesting is that you get into the 2018 U.S. Amateur after you get your status back at Pebble Beach. So your best finish in a U.S. Amateur is round of 32. That's, you know, making match play, winning one match, then then being, being bounced. So I want to ask you, between 2005 at Marion and 2018 at Pebble Beach, this is 13 years. I mean, this is from Eduardo Molinari to Victor Hovland. What are some of your USAM memories from from college and also from recently playing it? You know, what's different? What what were your experiences then as opposed to now? I wonder if you can talk about your USAM experiences. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start with my first USAM at Eastlake. Um, and the reason I'm going to do that, there's two reasons. Um, I was very proud at the time. I think I was, I just turned 18 and, uh, you know, probably one of the younger guys in the field at that point. Um, I know that now with the depth of the game, you've got 13 year olds qualifying, which is insane to me. It's totally insane, but I was very proud to have qualified at age 18. Another reason I like to tell that story is, um, kind of makes me feel very old when now I'm competing against some amateurs that weren't even born when Eastlake happened. But I can also tell them I played with a steel shafted driver and steel shafted forward as my woods in that. Um, it's just people look at me like I'm an alien when I say that. Yeah. Those um, are, young uh, kids. I got a couple of those lying around somewhere, but yeah, they're not very popular these days. No, I remember it was an X 100 in each. And, uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> I still have them. Actually, I, I hit them from time to time because I think that's fun. But uh, you know, th- so I'll start with that was 2001. Um, incredible experience. East Lake's amazing. Uh, still one of my favorite courses. Um, but then obviously, I mean, 2004 at Wingfoot, uh, I had to put a lot of pressure on myself. I had missed 02 and 03, and obviously it was kind of a hometown event for me. Um, being from Chappaqua in Westchester County, playing, growing up at Sleepy Hollow, 
um, Wingfoot's down the road. I'd played there a ton. I know a bunch of the guys over there and, uh, everyone in this area that was marked for a long time that they wanted to qualify for that event. So uh, that was a nervous qualifier. Um, I obviously placed a little more importance on it and I was able to pull it off. Um, it was kind of a gritty, gritty qualifier. I think I shot 144, nothing crazy on a tough course in Fenway golf club. But, uh, I was, there were not many people from Westchester who qualified. So that was a great experience. Um, I was selected to be part of the media day there and kind of funny story from that was I was a young kid still in college. And I said, do you want to be part of media day? And I was like, okay, sure. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't think about it much. Right. And I remember getting into one of the large rooms at Wingfoot. It's kind of right, right behind the uh, ninth green on the East course. There's a big room with glass windows. And I'm in there and they tell me, okay, you're going to speak in a few minutes. And everyone from the USGA is there. And I was okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't, didn't plan for that. And fortunately it went well. And the president of the USGA at that time was Fred Ridley. Sure. Uh, we all know Fred now from his uh, Augusta uh, position. Uh, it's a big guy down there. And uh, so I'm playing with him in the media day. And what I would have, that would have totally thrown me for a loop had I not been fortunate enough to be at UVA. And his daughter was a friend of mine. She went to UVA at the same time I oh, did, Libby perfect. Ridley. Perfect. So it just kind of eased into what could have been a very nervous and awkward scenario where I didn't even know what the media day was. Um, so that was a cool experience from that. And the course was just awesome. And it was an honor to be part of that. It was I played better. Um, and then, the following year in 2005, uh, had a great qualifier, uh, into Marion, um, almost didn't have the chance to get into that. Uh, they had put the cut rule in, in the qualifier where if you shoot a bad first round, you got cut from playing the second round of the qualifier. Really? So I checked. Yeah. And, uh, I shot 75 in the first round of the qualifier. Um, I think it was Pine Hollow in Long Island and, uh, it was not a good round. Uh, and I get out there and I'm nowhere near qualifying and got a little windy in the afternoon. And I shot 65 in the afternoon and actually became medalist. Um, so that was a pretty interesting way to qualify. Um, just had a kind of a stellar round to get in there. Um, and then carried the momentum, uh, into the tournament. And I learned a lot that week about competitive golf and about myself. It's a tough course. I went out and I'd never had particularly solid stroke play performances up to that point mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. amateur. And I went out and I finally got a good start. I shot 69 the first day um, at the alternate course. And I think I was in sixth place or something like that. So it didn't wasn't going to take much to make match play the next day. But I... I learned that, you know, you have to go out there and one the shot hammer, at time. Gotta keep the hammer down. You can't, uh, yeah. Exactly. And I remember when I, in that during that round, I was playing well. I think I was about even par. And uh, had five holes to go. And I was finishing up on the front nine in Marion. And I didn't keep the hammer down, as you said. <laughs> I, I, I relaxed. And it was, it taught me so much. So I bogeyed four out of my last five holes. Leaking oil. up being... Yeah, it was a 30-second seed. So I still made it comfortably. But why 
<laughs> why did I do that? And that was a huge learning experience for me that I still think about to this day. Um, when you get a lead a match play or when you're playing well, you got to keep going. You got to keep pushing. Um, the second you throttle back is when you make a couple mistakes. And if you're on a tough course, the USGA championship, it's going to eat you alive. So that was a cool learning experience. And then I had good matches there. Um, won an extra holes in the first round. And the second round, I lost my 18th green. And the, the guy who beat me that year, he birdied. If you know Marion at all, hole five and 18 are the two toughest holes. But a five is a long par four and 18 is a long par four. And I parred both. I lost both holes. And then lost on 18th green because of that. Wow. So um, not common to lose those holes with pars. I think that probably were one with par more likely. But you got to give it to the guy that does it, right? He, sure. uh, no, absolutely. I put a lot of lot of pressure on him coming down the stretch. And he stepped up and uh, birdied 18. So it was a good experience. Wish I'd stuck around a long guy was playing really well but uh and then 2018 yeah completely different so um i got my amateur stats back in the summer of 2016 and uh started playing tournaments again in the spring of 2017 and i hadn't played golf essentially for three years at that point and uh obviously had some cobwebs to to shake off and they came off but um the beginning of that year was a little interesting, but you're, and, and, and uh, you're but you're also trying to, um, but you're you're going into the 2018 USAM in a completely different mindset, or or are you? Are is it more of a social thing? Are you feeling a little bit out of place, or, um, you know how how are you approaching this one differently than maybe 2005 or 2004? Yeah, great question. Um, I definitely not a social thing. I mean, I think I I appreciate and love the social aspect of the game of golf and even tournament. Golf. Um, it's a pretty friendly sport and there's a lot of good guys. I like to sure. sit down and have meals and have drinks with, et cetera. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I enjoy that, but not going to us amateurs definitely wasn't a social experience for me, but my mindset was completely different. Um, I've now played professional golf for eight years and taken all of that knowledge and experience with me. Um, and it changed everything for me because, uh, I would, I was hoping in the past before I turned pro, I just, I would love to qualify for the U S amateur. And then I want to get there. I hope I play well and I hope I make match play and to not be in the mindset of, I belong here. I'm one of the best players here. If I play well, I'm going to be tough to beat. I'm here hopefully to win as hard as it is to win the U S amateur or any, match play event of that stature. Um, but my mindset going into 2018 is a lot different. So it was nice to finally qualify again for us amateur. Um, I wasn't very close in 2017 and, uh, it was great to, it was very exciting to be going out to Pebble. I mean, what a venue, um, absolutely incredible. But when I got there, I wasn't overwhelmed. I wasn't sure taken aback by, wow, you're playing Pebble Beach or wow, you're playing a U.S. amateur. Um, those feelings are all inside, but I was much more able to uh, understand those feelings and put them in the right place and cope with what I had to do. I mean, there's a job at hand. Um, the nice thing for me, being a reinstated mid-amateur, um, 
I don't always get to practice very much. So when I go to a USGA event, I get there. <laughs> You're there. It's just like golf camp, right? It is really. I mean, I get there. So I got there. I think the practice rounds were Saturday, Sunday. I got there Thursday night. I hit balls on Friday, kind of hung out and relaxed. And um, then I played two full practice rounds where I could practice a little bit those days, not too much because you don't want to get burnout. So now I've, I always tell people I'm pretty dangerous if I can play two or three days in a row. Um, I start getting in a groove again, sure. uh, much better than once a week. And then you get to the range and you're trying to find it. So I got out there and I, and I, my experience definitely is the reason I made match play there. Cause I didn't play great. I didn't play poorly, but I, I just managed the course so well and managed my emotions so well. And I wasn't overwhelmed with the moment. And I could have easily been if it wasn't for all the experience of the past U.S. amateur, the college career, the professional golf. And I think being older helped me. And there's a lot of young guns in that field. I mean, who are going to go on to win majors and tons of PJ tour events, but although they're the best talent out there in amateur golf, they don't have all the experience and it would have been easy to be overwhelmed. Stepping on for me, the first tee, uh, was it the first round I played an afternoon off one at Pebble? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty easy tee shot, but it's a pretty grand scene. Um, I can imagine it's a big deal. You know, it's a little claustrophobic with the people watching there. It's a tiny tee box and you only hit a three iron, but it's not the easiest shot in the world. Uh, to start the tournament and uh i went out and i, I birdied the first hole and then kind of managed my game um the second day at spyglass i think i had one birdie and two bogeys and just kind of hung in there for a 73 on a tough scoring day where spyglass was eating people up and kind of cruised into match play didn't have a great seed but i was just much more able to understand what I needed to do and not get overwhelmed going into 2018 for sure. Well, I, I want to kind of give listeners an idea of what your professional career was like before you got your status back and really became more of a, uh, you know, kind of fell into the mid amateur role. I know you're playing a lot of the uh, events up there in the Met and the New York state golf association. So I want to talk about that as well. So let's backtrack just a little bit. You're done with UVA. You win your last tournament, you turn pro um, you know, Virginia isn't, I guess, a bastion of golf as far as like, you know, chasing after a professional career. That doesn't sound like the best place to kind of set up a home base where you can practice a lot and you have great weather and great opportunities and, and games and things like that. So talk to me about, you know, where did you start your, your professional career? How did you start your professional career? Um, you know, walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I started planning for that, I think, in January when I still had a semester left of school um, and a lot of golf tournaments ahead of me on, for the UVA team. But I started, you know, mapping out what the following year and a half was going to look like. Um, where am I going to live? Uh, what tours am I going to play? And what's the plan? So uh, fortunately enough, um, we had a bunch of good talent coming out of UVA. And they all set up shop in the West Palm Beach area. And, uh, okay. you know, it, you want, I wanted to go somewhere where I knew someone and, and knew people. So I, I headed down that way, um, found an apartment to rent and, uh, was able to join Bear Lakes and where a couple of the other guys were. And at least I had the guys. It was like all the, with the four or five 
maybe more, maybe six captains of the UVA golf team in a row all turned pro. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, you got from 01, uh, it was probably Driscoll, uh, 02 Marino and, and on and on, um, where we're all down there living in that area. Um, most of them were members of Bear Lake. So I had a community and a kind of friendly support system automatically by moving there. So I decided to do that and I graduated in 2006. So at that time, the, uh, it was the gray goose gateway tour, uh, which was the golden bear tour. Right. Um, it changed names a few times, but that was huge and the money was good. Um, so yeah, they had the winter series, spring series and summer series. I think you could play 41 events if, if you signed up for them all, uh, and you qualified for the tour championships. So not only was West Palm a logical, uh, place to end up with the friends I had and the support system I would have there, but also there was a tour that I could stay at home and develop my game on. Um, and then there's a bunch of Q school in Florida. So it was just, it kind of fit naturally. It was a very quick decision and easy decision to head to South Florida. And the weather's perfect there all year. Yeah. Um, little, hot, little hot in the summer, but uh, you can play golf pretty much every day. And uh, no shortage of games and competition and tournaments to play. So that's how I ended up there. Now, was that at that time, were you just all in the same boat, just playing Gateway and Golden Bear and all the, the kind of developmental tours? Was that what the scene was like for you around South Florida? Because now it seems like the Jupiter area, you got Tiger, Ricky, Rory, we can go down the line of all these guys that are on tour just hanging around. So I'm just curious, like, you know, you're, you know, at a bar or, you know, the supermarket or you're food shopping or grabbing a beer and someone asks you what you do for a living and they say, and you say professional golfer, are they all think they're thinking that you're on the same level as, as Tiger, Ricky, Rory, or obviously, you know, Ricky and Rory aren't, aren't around at that time, but what was it like to live in the area when, when you say professional golfer, maybe people have the assumption that, oh yeah, yeah, you're on, I know, yeah, you're on TV with all the rest of them, but you're not at that uh. level. Depends who you talk to, really. Uh, it, it really changed a lot, too. So uh, I would say, to answer the question of what people think first, uh, it became something where everyone was a professional golfer uh, hanging around that area. Uh, with the, You had the minor league tour come out around that time. You had the Grey Goose Gateway. And then it just kind of morphed into a mecca where everyone was at some some level a, a professional golfer and a lot of the club pros would head down there in the winter. And so you're running into people all the time. And it seems like everyone's a professional golfer. So some people were impressed and got an impression of you that maybe you were on TV and some were on TV and some weren't. And other people said, okay, sure. Everyone's a professional golfer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> nice. um, kind of a weird uh, to have that many weird thing to have that many uh, professional golfers living in one area at all different levels. Um, but to get back to, what the scene was like when I moved down there, it evolved uh, immensely <laughs> during the time I was there. So I was there from uh, July 06 until February 2017. And the last few years, I wasn't playing professional golf down there, um, but I was around all those guys. So it became, it was kind of sneaky. So when I first moved down there, I thought everyone was a, journeyman or a young guy playing mini tours and 
what I then learned was uh, there was a nice little place called Meadows Golf Club up the road. And yeah, that's, uh, that's a neat track if you can just, you know, pop in for a quick nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, fortunately knew someone from Sleepy Hollow that got me connected with the right people and um, spent a year at Bear Lakes, but then I was able to get over and get a membership at medalist before i'd say before it was a big deal because in the public's eye when tiger joined is when medalist was known but at the time i joined you had Ryder cuppers there so you got olin brown you got jesper parnovic uh freddie jacobson uh, it, it list goes on really uh brett wetterick was there uh yeah. it, it, it became it became this known to me that there was this little mecca up the road just north of Jupiter where a bunch of PGA Tour players hung out. And all I'm practicing alongside these guys, which was a huge help. Um, obviously, it's nice to be at a sweet setup, sweet course, amazing practice facilities, um, et cetera. But to have games with those guys um, was incredible. Um, but obviously, I feel Jupiter... More people were moving out of Orlando because it still gets a little cold in Orlando right. and moving to Jupiter for the warmth, for the great golf courses year round. And uh, obviously, Tiger was a big part of that. And uh, it was pretty cool to cross paths with him at Medalist. Um, well, it was nice of you to, to help him get into the club and vouch for him. So, I mean, that's that was nice of you to do. Um, I'm, I'm sure it was me. I'm sure I'm the reason he got into medalist. All right. Breaking news on this podcast. You got tiger into medalist. I'm glad we, we could finally clear that up. I'm, all right. So I know you have a tiger story and I'm, I'm delaying it. Cause I just, I have to ask you what you're able to glean and learn from these guys, you know, Wetterick and Brown and, and Parnovic someone that's attending a PG tour event may watch them while they're playing. They may watch them hit balls afterwards, but they're not other than visually seeing what they're doing. I would imagine that the, the lay, the, the layman, the, the regular fan isn't getting that much unless they can pick up a little swing idiosyncrasy, but you're spending every day away from cameras, away from TV coverage when they're doing their normal routine, their normal practice or prep or playing sessions what are maybe some of the things or maybe some of the people that really helped you become a professional and, and things that you still carry with you today as, as an amateur? Yeah, for sure. Um, having the opportunity to be around those guys, as you said, it's just incredible and behind the scenes. And I learned a lot. Um, so I'd say one of my peers, um, Hugo Leon, who I mentioned earlier, who's a little bit younger than me, so it's not a guy. We both came out at the same time. But I just loved his work ethic. So we helped push each other along, and we still do. Um, he helps me as an amateur golfer, and surprisingly, somehow I can still <laughs> keep an eye on him and help him in his uh, pursuit of uh, getting into the top of the game. I mean, he's a European tour player, so he's pretty much there. But um, he was my peer who I would say had the most influence on me, and we traveled together. We spent our first year in Canada together in '09. Um, and we traveled for many years together between Canada, Latin America, mini tours, gateway tour, tour championships. Um, we were always buddies and roommates and uh, practiced together at Medalist. Um, he is one guy I got into Medalist. So there you go. There is one. Fine. You, fine. <laughs> Hugo and Tiger, the connection. We, we, we figured it out. <laughs> um, 
so he was my peer. But as far as like the big names, um, Richard S. Johnson, he's a PJ Tour champion from Sweden, and uh, he helped me a lot too. And not that other people didn't, um, but he was always kind of taking guys under his wing. Um, he's one of the great guys out there. I mean, he invited us to dinners. He would talk to us about what's going well, what's not going well. And we play a ton of matches against him. And he always pushed us to be tough, stick with it, grind it out. And he's, I mean, he's a bulldog. He, he works harder than most people. I mean, he probably doubles some of the work of some of the guys who are even on the PGA tour. Uh, he grinds on a short game. And when you're around people like that, you realize if you were to get complacent or to get lazy or get a bad attitude and you look over and the guy next to you, he's got a better attitude and he's working harder. Uh, it kind of pulls you right up out of whatever rut you're in and shows you, this is what I need to be doing. Um, this guy's going to outwork me if I don't step it up. So he was a huge part of it. And, uh, yeah, Spur was great to us. Um, a lot of dinners at his house too. And, and a lot of, he, he liked to, uh, like to play matches and gamble and stuff like that. So we had some, we had some really nice matches where talking about a, uh, five-time PGA Tour champion, I believe, and a Ryder Cupper, and uh, just a, a great golfer. Um, playing matches against someone like that, and he would push pretty hard. Uh, very competitive guy. So those were those were learning experiences. And then um, Olin Brown is one of the biggest class acts out there. Um, he helped all of us a ton. Um, he's actually part Chilean, so he knew Hugo for a long time. And we played. I can't. I couldn't put a number on how many rounds I played with Dolan. Um, but to see how he got it done was so different because he doesn't hit it very far and right. he tries. He probably won't like that. I'm telling everyone knows how far he hits it. That's on, on the website. But, uh, he would try to, the only thing he did, he's all just messing around with drivers and stuff and trying to hit it harder. But if you just watch the guy, he's the most consistent golfer I've ever been around. Um, he, he rarely missed the center of the fairway by five yards, let alone miss the fairway. And one of the most amazing things about him was, Mills is a very windy place. It's a tough, long golf course. Um, so he's having five woods into some par fours where we're hitting eight irons in. And he's hitting his five woods to eight feet. And we're hitting our eight irons to 15 feet. And he's laughing at us. And he's making birdies on us. And he's kicking our butt. So to see someone approach the game... Uh, in a completely different way, have that level of consistency and grit and uh, accuracy with five woods, for example. Yeah. Um, it's uncanny and uh, definitely another learning experience. You don't necessarily need to hit it 400 yards, even though that's all anyone talks about. Um, there's other ways to get it done. Um, so those were guys I learned a ton from. Well, I mean, Olin Browns, I mean, he's a guy I'm just, I'm just, looking this up because if i remember correctly he won yeah i mean he won the u.s senior open in 2011 i mean this guy won a major he won a senior major and that just makes perfect sense because a course like that and also just usga setup you gotta hit it straight but i think it's interesting how you're not just rattling off names of pros they're very different pros you know, they're not just the, yeah, it's a bunch of mini tour guys, but you're talking about Olin Brown and Jesper and all these different names that approach the game from different decades, different styles of play. So I'm guessing that had to be very important with your education when you're starting off thinking, okay, you know, do I have to just bomb the hell out of it all the time? Well, maybe not. Yeah. 
I totally. Um, it was great to be around so many great champions from different decades and who play the game completely differently. And when people, if, if anyone wants my advice, which is very rare, but uh, when they do, I tell them the best thing they can do is to put away all the notions of what a swing needs to look like or what you, how you need to hit the ball and just go to a PJ tournament and sit on one tee where, where they're going to hit drivers off the tee or they're hitting into a par three and just look at the swings. Don't look at the shots, look at the swings and just analyze what you think you see. And what you end up seeing is everyone goes about it completely differently. Yeah. You don't need, you don't need a track man there to say, these are the numbers. Um, track man is very helpful. It's awesome. But when you can sit there and, and just with your eyes, you see no swing looks the same, really. Um, there's some guys that fall more in the middle and then there's a bunch of weird stuff going on out there and they all get it done. So there's obviously a lot of ways to approach the game. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of all the talk about how far everyone hits it and, and how that's portrayed. Um, really? I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's even real. Um, yeah. well, I mean, I especially mean, on PGA tour courses where, um, you know, you get so much more for run out than maybe at everyone else's course. So, you know, they could carry it two seventy and have it end up being three ten. Um, for sure. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned being around these guys, so we, we can't just talk shop the entire time. Uh, if you got invited over to one of these guys houses for dinner and maybe a glass of wine, um, what, what was going to be the most dangerous evening where that glass of wine turns into a couple bottles of wine? Yes, we're part of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Two words. Yes, we're part yes, of it. Yes, we're part of it. Okay, so you get an invite to his place. You know you're. You know tomorrow morning you're not teeing it up at 7.08. Oh, I was still teeing up at 7.08, but oh. you just felt a little different on the first tee. Okay. Um, <laughs> is it... But you're, you're in for a night. I mean, you you got to put you gotta strap up, and, okay. uh, you know, it's a good thing that they have Uber, right? I mean... I think you could just kind of weave around the in internal roads of gated communities. I don't even think the law applies to any sort of safe driving techniques there. <laughs> That's not even safe for me to say. I'll cut that out. That's not right. Um, all right. So all we, yeah, drive, don't drive drunk. Anyway. Um, so, all right. So give me just, I'm not asking you to throw anyone under, under the bus, but, but at least give me at least a little taste of what a night at the Parnovic household when, when the wine starts getting going, like who's around. I mean, is, is, I think you mentioned some other guys. I mean, Nikki Price has got to be at that level too. Yeah, Price was there a bunch, um, and his caddy was there a bunch. Uh, Jesper's caddy is there a bunch. Got Richard Johnson and Jesper, our best buddies who live. I mean, you could hit a five iron between their houses at the time. Uh, so there was always a scene, and and a lot of the young guys, like Will McKenzie, would hang out over there. Uh, I'm forgetting a million people, but. Uh, Needless to say, the dinner parties were full of people you would recognize from TV, which sure. was cool. Uh, took me a few dinners to get comfortable. Oh, I uh, can imagine you're because I mean, yeah, you're you're at one of those dinners. You're like, I just you're making sure you're using the right fork and don't spill anything. Well, he's pretty laid back, but it's always tough when you're trying to make it. You know, I hadn't hadn't been on at that time was the Web.com tour, and. Mm -hmm. These guys have won out there, or, or they're on the PGA Tour, the place I'm trying to get, and their stories and mine are a little bit different. <laughs> um, so I think that was what it took me to get over. But then you realize it's not all about shop. It's not all about golf. We went over there, and we had a good time, and we, we talked about other stuff. And um, I'd say that 
the cool part was, yeah, eating dinner with Nick Price is very cool, right? And as is Jesper. But Jesper, there's a lot of people don't know about Jesper. Uh, he He's very smart. I don't want to guess what his IQ is, but it's, it's a large number. And uh, he also knows magic, which I didn't know. Okay. So he's, he's like card tricks and all this stuff. And he's pretty witty. He, and he likes to uh, he likes to prod a little bit. And one of his specialties is he is a guy that you don't know if he's testing you or messing with you all the time unless you know him. You're witty and your IQ is high. So, um, fortunately, I wasn't really the target of too much of it, maybe because I didn't let him get one up on me. Right. Uh, thank my UVA education for that, I guess. But uh, <laughs> Well, you got your sociology major, so you, you, can, you can read right through all that stuff. Whatever that means, yeah. <laughs> Whatever that means. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, but it was fun to watch him. Uh, you know, we'd crack a few bottles of wine and as those would flow, we would get some uh, interesting scenes where he was, he was prodding at people and they would either get it or not get it. And those was always entertaining. And uh, yeah, the conversations were always great. I mean, his wife Mia is fantastic um, as far as being supportive and making everyone feel welcome and uh, keeping Jesper in line. So it was always fun um, to be that. And those conversations, I mean, they lasted, I don't know. The sun never came up on us, I don't think. Um, but they weren't, they weren't early night. So clearly when you're, when you're off the clock and you want to have a good time, uh, just swing on over to the Parnovic house and there's always a, a good, uh, adventure there waiting for you. But you mentioned something about, you know, Canada. Um, one of the previous guests on the podcast here was, uh, Dan McCarthy, who, you know, from, from the professional ranks, he was a previous guest. He is, you know, one last season in Savannah on the corn Ferry tour he had that incredible season on the Canadian tour. I believe it was back in 2016, but you, you traveled with him for an entire season. And I just love hearing stories about traveling on the developmental tours or the, you know, whatever you want to call it, AAA, web, corn fairy. Um, what is it like traveling through Canada to play golf? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I mean, it, it's incredible. You start out West in British Columbia, uh, which is, one of my favorite places. And I think you're going to get that from everyone. It's going to sound boring because everyone's going to tell you the same story, but um, we started in Vancouver, which is great. And then we went to Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island. And that to me, I mean, I could move there. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it is beautiful. The town is incredible. It's got great food, great bars, uh, great people. Uh, and the golf is great. Uh, so I, I don't know what else you could ask for. Uh, and they, they really run the tournament so well in Canada. So I was lucky enough to play it as the Canadian tour, uh, starting in 2009 was the first year I qualified for that. And then I played it PGA tour Canada after the PGA tour came in. And, uh, I don't know if that's a partnership or bought it or, or how that played out. Um, but I saw both sides of it and, um, both were run incredibly professionally. Um, it was my first taste of, a true big tour feel. Uh, so from the golf standpoint, you know, you've got courtesy cars taking you places. You've got a bunch of spectators um, and, and the stuff that a miniature version of what you would see at the PGA tour level. And you have to understand that Canada is a very proud country and oh, yeah. their tour is great. So that's their PGA tour. Not that they're not PGA tour fans, but if their town has an event, they're coming out. 
and they're going to be loud and they're going to have a good time. Um, we had many pro-ams that we played. I mean, I think in Montreal, there were nine pro-ams you could sign up for oh, to wow. play. Yeah, it was crazy. So the, the fans up there are incredible. They couldn't get enough of it. And I think part of that speaks to the condensed season they have. Um, they're all big golfers. It's a, gol- it's a hockey and golfing nation, really. Um, maybe they like curling, too. But uh, doesn't you know, like curling. Come on, man. I need to get into that for sure. I really need to find a spot where we can do some curling, but not to get off topic, you know, they, they don't get much golf. So when they can get it in they're they're all about it. And, uh, so it's a deep love for them and, and they run the tournaments. Well, there's so many volunteers up there. And for me, it was my first taste of a bigger tour feel, which is a learning experience too. Um, so that was great. And as far as, the social side and of it was uh, maybe too good. <laughs> I don't okay. know. All right. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. You're traveling with your buddies and you want to beat them on the course and you want to beat everyone on the course, but there's a different level of camaraderie on a tour like Canada, as opposed to even corn Ferry or PGA tour, because there's not much money out there. So yeah. all of a sudden you're, you're looking for good deals. You're splitting rooms, you're splitting cabs. Um, and in doing that, you, you get a lot closer with the guys you're traveling with. And obviously you choose to travel with your buddies. So I, I traveled with Hugo Leon and Danny McCarthy in 2009. And, uh, you know, we eat dinner together every night when we were going out for drinks, we were going out for drinks together. Um, we were practicing together, our practice rounds, we played them all together. We would, come up with a plan for the course together, even though ours varied a little bit because Hugo hits at 10 miles and don't, but, um, right. you know, it, it's a different, different social scene. I mean, there's not a lot of guys on the PGA tour having that close of a relationship and traveling situation. Um, you know, they, they've got either their families or they've got, you know, they don't need to split a room with someone. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> It's yeah, not necessary. I, yeah, I often wonder what the PGA Tour would look like without as much money, uh, with without all the money. And I know it's kind of a strange thing to say, like, well, okay, well, it's not going to be as big, and it's not going to have all, you know, the, the the purses aren't going to be as big. And of course, that's correct. And but if if everyone was more in the same boat, where there wasn't such a separation with the haves and the have-nots, mm. you know, like you see a guy that's in the top thirty, he is traveling and doing and scheduling and having it's much different than the guy that's at, you know, 97 on the money list. So yeah. I'm just curious. I, I've always wondered what that would, you know, what would the PGA tour look like if it operated with the same camaraderie as PGA tour Canada? Oof. I don't know. I, I think I age know. is a huge factor I, in that too. Right. Um, I mean, it, it takes a while to get to the PGA tour. And I mean, of course, I mean, people, people love to see and talk about, you know, the Morikawas and, and the Hovlands and the Wolves and, and what they're doing is, is just incredible. It's actually mind blowing, but, um, in general, I mean, most people, it takes a while to get to the PJ tour and they don't always stay there right away. Oh, so yeah. they might pop, they might pop in at 24 or 25 and then they'll be on the web for a couple of years and then they'll pop back in and no one knows who they are. And then they get established in their thirties. So I think from the camaraderie standpoint, it's a lot easier to have that, at 25 years old than it is at 35. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Almost as, it's just different. So yeah, yeah, of course, of course. It's interesting. Interesting to think about. Uh, but 
it was nice to have that camaraderie in Canada. I can tell you that for sure. Um, and even in Latin America, I played in Latin America. Um, but it was great to travel with uh, Hugo and Danny. And I really enjoyed listening to Danny on uh, your podcast. I was laughing a bit and, and biting my lip a bit because I I kind of lived part of what you guys were talking about. Um, why he moved down and where he moved and traveling in Canada. Uh, and then when you guys start talking about Lemoyne, I, I almost died because I, I'll never forget. I don't know if he still has it. I got to find out. I probably I should text him after this. But uh, he, he was carrying this head cover of this huge dolphin, and you know, it didn't even have a university name on it. I don't think it's just this massive dolphin on his golf bag. And I, I, we always just, I'd always prodded him on that. I said, "Buddy, what, what's going on here with the dolphin?" And uh, his nickname for a while. Um, he's gonna not be happy about this, but it was Danny the Dolphin <laughs> in, in a very small circle. Perfect. So, uh, no, it was fun listening to it and to see what he's done with his golf game. Uh, it's just so impressive. Um, he, we, we all knew he was great at winning. He won a ton of college tournaments, but he hit the ball very low when we started playing professional golf and he worked his butt off <laughs> to do what he's done with his golf swing. And he just has a, one of those guys with a tireless work ethic and self-belief. And he made a lot of big changes, and they paid off. I mean, he hits the ball much higher. He's one of the best and most consistent ball strikers out there. Uh, so it's fun to watch. Um, glad I got to see the early stages of it. And I can really appreciate what he's done and how good he is. And I think the sky's the limit for a guy like that, right? No one knows who he is maybe right now, and he's starting to get known. But it wouldn't surprise me. People are going to be surprised if he gets out there and wins an event, but I'm not. So it's been, it's cool. Yeah. No, I, I uh, really enjoyed my conversation with him and, and hope to see, uh, hope to see him on uh, the PGA Tour as soon as possible. Um, well, Brad, we got a lot of stuff that we still have to get to. So um, kind of a different thing. I'm going to say, hey, can we, uh, can we catch up again soon and talk about things like, the fact that you won three mid-amateur championships in the span of 10 days recently, and as recent as this year, and there's all the amateur events that you play in. And then, you know, I, I know we didn't get to the Tiger Woods story that you have played with him, and I know it's a fantastic story, but I think I'm going to leave that and tease that for our second half of our conversation, if that works for you. I would love that. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, very excited about continuing the conversation. I think... Uh, Nothing, no better cliffhanger than a tiger story, right? Perfect. Well, I appreciate you stopping by for this first half of this uh, episode. We're going to do the second half real soon at the back of the range. So uh, thanks for joining me, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. All right. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Special thanks to Brad Tilly for joining us on the final episode of 2019, and he's going to be the first episode of 2020. So stay tuned for that. Hope everyone has a great new year. We'll see you in 2020 for our next episode here at the back of the range.